It's an absolute pleasure to be here, and I just think it's such a great initiative. I was actually, I think, involved in the third event you put on, was it, ever? And it's just so wonderful to see how this fantastic idea, the Weekend University, has grown. So a little bit about, um, well, what we're going to do this afternoon um, is uh, I'm going to we're going to, I'm going to give you a very general high-level introduction to positive psychology, a very high level. And then we're going to spend a chunk of the day looking at the psychology of strengths and then look at some other um, ideas from positive psychology, all evidence-based, that actually are um, really sort of integ you know, integral in terms of the idea of actually how do we um, reach and live our potential. But just a little bit about me, the sort of backstory, if you like, um, in terms of it's actually the idea of human potential is something that I'm, I've been personally interested in for a very long time. I, um, my first degree was psychology and biology quite a long time ago. Then I trained as a chartered accountant. I worked with PwC, Arthur Anderson. But I realized, having qualified, that my interest was actually around my interest in organisations was actually mostly around um, people, and I did some study here at Birkbeck, um, and spent many years in HR roles and then in consulting, um, moving more and more and more towards the ideas about how do we identify talent? How do we develop talent? Um, how do we kind of grow leaders? Um, and it was in that consulting period about, I was working for, a, doing a lot of consulting work for big organizations around the world on this idea of talent. And I was getting very, very dissatisfied, actually uncomfortable um, with what at that time, big organizations were, how they were describing talent and high potential, as they were talking about high potential schemes. Because what they really meant was who are the 10 to 15% of our organization that we think have got the most greatest likelihood of reaching the top. That's what talent meant. That's what high potential meant. And I have no problem with risk management. And we need a, you know, in terms of succession plan, you need a succession plan at all levels of the organization. But I was very uncomfortable of noted, you know, saying that the people with potential, were, there was only 10 or 15% of people who were, had talent or high potential. And I, I was very interested in, surely if we can release, release a little bit extra potential from the bottom 85 or 90%, surely that's going to be great for those people and great for the organization beyond. So and it was with those questions that were kind of sitting with me, really, that I came across um, positive psychology. I was at the first, at the World Congress of um, Leadership Development, which happened to be in London um, in about 2008. And... Somebody was talking about a new psychology of strengths, and it was literally a light bulb went off with me. And I just thought that has to be part of the future, and I want it to be part of my future. So I came back, Googled it, found that you could go study this stuff. Um, at the time, the um, the only or it was you know the most established place still is the most established place, and it is the epicenter for it. Um, University of Pennsylvania with Martin Seligman, who created the field of positive psychology. So I applied, got in and then went, took a sabbatical, went to study it. So my, my work ever since has been taking that science and helping make it 
practical and accessible for people, um, you know, in their daily lives, in their work, etc. So that's my backstory. And so why this, the topic of today is something that I'm really, really interested in. So I just want to say a little bit about Action for Happiness because um, I'm actually using the Action for... I, I work in various guises, but I'm work, um, Action for Happiness I'm a trustee of. I've been there since before it started and, and sort of have led the, the translation of the psychology to the actions we tell people to take. Um, anybody here heard of Action for Happiness? Oh, that's quite good, probably about 50%. Well, actually, just to get quick at that, because there's a lot of resources on the website which um, you may find interesting. So Action for Happiness was founded, partly because of this graph summarises it for me, by um, one of the um, UK and the world's leading economists, Professor Richard Layard, at LSE. Um, and he had argued that the way we measure progress as a society um, traditionally, was by GDP. Um, so one figure, really, um, um, GDP per capita, GDP per head. And if we looked at trends um, from, whether from the 1950s, 1970s, European data, US data, that had trended upwards. It blips, but trended upwards. But if we look at measures of how happy people feel, um, people's levels of life satisfaction, we hadn't, haven't seen a massive increase in that. There's a slight nudge upwards um, recently. But um, we, you know, despite this economic growth, before this being what economists and governments have looked at in terms of what is it to mean a social progress, what does that mean? Um, it wasn't actually making people feel more satisfied with their lives. And we know that mental ill health is rising. So Action for Happiness was formed to actually help close this gap. And Richard has been instrumental, and it's still growing, in terms of getting our government and indeed other governments to start taking a broader view on, on social progress. So we have well-being um, statistics. Now, it's, you know, it'll take time for those to get to hold. New Zealand is introducing well-being budget, has introduced well-being budget in their treasury. So I won't go into that, but that's why Action for Happiness was formed. Um, and positive psychology, it was the... It was the timing, the alignment, really, between Richard arguing for this stuff, uh, for this uh, broader measures of social progress. Um, and it was the, about the same time as positive psychology was emerging. And so positive psychology is the evidence base, if you like, that is actually helping us think about, well, how do we close that gap? So how many of you here actually have heard of positive psychology? How many people know what positive psychology is. Somebody want to shout out what they think positive psychology is? Yes, that's a pretty good definition. So it's, 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 it's more than the tools, but that absolutely is it. So, so I, and thank you for that, because lots of people say, oh, you know, we, um, we know what positive psychology is. It's all about positive thinking. <laughs> And our thought processes are part of positive psychology, but positive thinking, as in, if I ignore the negative and I just focus on happy thoughts, then that's, um, life is going to be okay and I'll reach this happy place and nothing bad will ever happen again. That's absolutely not what positive psychology is. So psychology is, as you very nicely put, sorry, I don't know people's names apart from Shramash, who's at the back there, who uh, was a joy to see. Um, so positive psychology was established by Martin Seligman and Cheetsek Mihai, Mike Cheetsek Mihai. Um, 
And they defined it as the study of the conditions and processes that contributed to flourishing. Um, so processes, i.e. The, you know, the tools as well as the other things. Uh, or optimal human flourishing of people, groups and institutions. Psychology historically, and certainly when I first studied it, had focused primarily on why things go wrong and how do we treat, cure or manage those things, um, those conditions. And most, the bulk of like, like 95 or 6%, something in the 90s, I can't remember the exact percentage, of psychological research in the 150 years that the science had been established was on this side, the minor side, if you like. And what Marty Seligman realized, he, um, in about 1998, he became president of the American Psychological Association, probably the biggest job in psychology. And he'd spent his life focusing on depression, studying depression. And he coined the term learned helplessness, um, and a very eminent psychologist in the, in the study of depression, the field of depression. But he realized that actually not being ill not having a psychological dysfunction, if you like, is not the same as living a really flourishing life. And very little psychological research had focused on this end. You know, why do things work and how do we share that and help people have fulfilling lives? And so he set about um, to change that. And that's where the birth of positive psychology. I actually don't like the term because of the confusion with positive psychology. Um, but it is that somewhere because it's the, you know on the plus side, human functioning side of life is where the term comes from. And it's interesting because when psych psychology was established as a field 150 so years ago, actually it said it had three main aims. Three main aims. So one was curing mental illness. The second was making people's lives more productive and fulfilling. And it was also about identifying and nurturing talent. But partly because this is, of course, is an important thing to, to alleviate suffering is, is a really um, important um, sort of driver for any field. Um, um, but also because of the timing, because of um, the funding and research and having through two world wars, etc., that this is where most of the attention and research funding are gone. Very little are gone here. So positive psychology aimed to actually, it's the same psychological methods, the same psychological approach, the same sort of, sort of scientific approach, if you like, but applied to prevention, increasing well-being, and nurturing strength, which is a big topic today. And it's not as if people hadn't thought about it before. In Maslow, many of you, well, most of you, I'm sure, have heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And Maslow said that psychology has um, revealed much about um, people's shortcoming. His original quote was man, but that was the time, 50s or whenever he said it. Um, but little about our potentialities. And now going back as far as Aristotle, who actually is, um, Marty Seligman studied philosophy before he studied um, psychology. And he's very influenced by Aristotle. Um, so, Because Aristotle, um, of all the, the ancient Greek philosophers, had very kind of, you know, well-articulated views on the topic of ha happiness and living a good life. And he was talking about how, and I'm going to unpack this a bit, that, you know, that actually focusing on what enables people to flourish, to feel happy, um, 
in a true sense of the word, is, um, is actually the aim of human existence. So, there, so people have been thinking about this for a long time, but actually very little scientific study have gone there. So I just want to explore, because I, you know, sit, I use this term happiness quite a lot because of my association with action happiness. So I just want to think about what that is. I mean, how many of you here would say, um, if you had to choose one thing in your life um, above everything else that you wanted for yourself, or if you've got children, what you wanted for them, how many of you said, well, actually, if I had to choose one thing, I'd want, I, I'd want to be happy or I want them to be happy. How many of you would say that? Many hands go up. And that's usually the case. But really, what does that mean? And what does that, what does that take? Which is what we're going to be exploring today. Um, anybody recognize this guy? Yes. No? What? Well, he's a Buddhist, yeah? Do you know who he is? Oh, it says Machu Ricard. <laughs> Just seeing if you're awake after lunch. It's a difficult slot. Um, 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 he said to have the happiest brain on the planet. Um, he hates that. Um, but it's because a lot of the um, early neuroscientific studies were done on him because of his um, um, extensive meditation practice. Um, but he is a very, very nice person. But he describes happiness as a deep sense of flourishing, not more than a mere pleasurable feeling or fleeting emotion. So we throw this word happiness around, um, usually in, oh, you know, that my, you know, that cake I had this afternoon will make me, you know, will make me happy or has made me happy. Um, we throw it around quite a lot, um, but actually, when you dig beneath it, and if I think I asked, you, if I asked each of you to list some of the things that happiness contributes to happiness for you, you'd soon get to this idea of fulfilment um, and flourishing and things, things that are connected with potential. So he describes it as an optimal state of being. Um, the ancient Greeks talked about, going back to Aristotle, talked about two different sorts of happiness. They talked about hedonia, which is where our word hedonism comes from, pleasure. But Aristotle also talked about an idea called eudaimonia, a sense of well, uh, well-being or flourishing. Uh, it's, it's translated variously. But this was about living a good life, a life of fulfillment, a life um, of virtue. By that he meant by virtue, by living in accordance with the best within us, for ourselves and for other people. And it's that, when we, and I talk about this word happiness and action of happiness, it's actually that blend of the two, because we'll see um, that um, when we're working towards things that are fulfilling, when we're working to try and make the most of our potential, it doesn't actually always feel good. It can be bloody hard work. It can be difficult. Things will go wrong. Um, um, you know, we'll go up, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make mistakes. So actually some pleasure along the way can actually help. So I, be, I believe we need a blend of those two things. But interestingly, if we look at, if we look at the World Health um, Organization's definition of psychological well-being, we see that, and they describe mental health, um, it's a state of well-being in which every individual realizes his or her own potential. So this idea of potential is at the heart of what World Health Organization is saying mental health is, or indeed, I prefer the term psychological well-being. So it's there, this idea of potential. It's one of those things that's quite hard to, to nail down, but it's interestingly there in a, you know, as influential organization as the WHO. 
One thing, the other thing around positive psychology um, and now um, alongside things like neuroscience, um, and we are seeing a whole field of positive neuroscience, um, is that it, when I first studied psychology, it was felt that our brains became fixed, um, you know, in our late teens, early 20s, and that was it. You couldn't really teach an old dog new trick. It was all downhill, really. Um, which is all a bit, was a bit depressing at the time. <laughs> um, but actually, science is showing that we can indeed learn skills and tools um, that can help us to become happier live, and live more fulfilling lives. So, of course, our happiness is affected by many, many things. Our ability to, to nurture our potential is affected by many things. Our genes, our genetic inheritance play a role. And, and it's the interplay between those and our environment, which is the key thing. Um, but that's not the whole story, um, because just because you've, you, know, you come from a family who are great, something doesn't necessarily mean you will be, or, or that you can't be good at something else. Our circumstances, of course, play a role. And that will vary depending on the, the, um, um, the nature of those circumstances. But assuming our basic needs are met, for safety, for food, for um, connection are met, then how happy we feel, our ability to live a flourishing life, is, um, has, a, is, has a significant um, um, basis on our choices and our behaviours. So things, and that's good news, because this is the stuff that we have control over. And the research is showing with this idea of neuroplasticity that with intention and practice, we can indeed change our brains. And actually, it doesn't, your brains are changing. Your brains have changed today. Just through the lectures you've been sitting in, your brains have changed, the people you've been talking to. So brains change all the time. They're in a constant flux. So, I mean, of course, there are peak periods when our brains are very plastic, you know, in our early years and our teenage years, but they continue to change right up, um, do. And actually, the more we use them, the more they, they, that plasticity is maintained. So, so we can indeed learn some tools and skills and ideas and conditions that help us to become happier. So what can we do that makes a difference? So when I um, got involved in Action for Happiness, I'd literally just come out of my master's and um, got involved, um, met Mark, who's the director. He's been there a couple of weeks. And he, um, I said, how can I help? He said, well, can you help us? It's all, we're called Action for Happiness, but we need to, so we need to tell people what actions to take. So, um, and he comes from a campaigning background and a science background, but not from a psychology background. So I spent, my sabbatical got extended and I um, helped, well, I led the creation of what we call the 10 Keys to Happier Living, the acronym's Great Dream. So I, I, I mean, I've got some cards, actually, if you remind me, I do have some of these cards I can give, give out to you at the end. Um, so I basically synthesized everything I'd learned on the masters, everything that I'd, um, there's a huge government report, report on mental capital for the 21st century, it was done in 2008, massive piece of work, synthesized all of that, synthesized loads of um, other research into the areas we can take action in to um, um, enhance our own well-being and indeed that of others. So today, we're going to be looking at two of those. Um, well, this key in particular, um, which is about self-acceptance. It's about understanding 
our potential? What are those qualities in Aristotle? In Aristotle, gosh, it's Sunday afternoon. How do I say it? Aristotle's ter um, terms? Those potentialities, those things, those qualities that are best within us, and how do we make the most of those? So we're going to spend um, a bit of time looking at that, and then. Um, towards the end of the afternoon thinking about what gets in the way and how can positive psychology help. But I thought we'd try out with a little bit of an experiment to begin with because this will kind of um, give us a basis in which to look at this. So you up for an experiment? Do you all have a piece of paper and a pen that you are, because we do have, I don't know, there's supplies somewhere uh, over there. If we, anybody who hasn't got paper and pen? No? Okay. Right, where are we going here? I'm jumping around on my slides. Okay, some of you may know this if you're familiar with positive psychology, but um, go with it anyway. So I want you to reflect back on your day yesterday. From the moment you got up to the moment you went to bed. It was a Saturday, so that might be quite good for some. So I want you to think about three things you enjoyed, were grateful for, or were pleased about, and write them down. Just a note, you, or you don't need to write an essay, just like a couple of words on each. Um, just reflect back on um, yesterday, three things you enjoy, were grateful for, were pleased about. You know, they don't have to be big things. It could be, I got a, you know, I was heading into town and because it was a Saturday, I got a seat on the tube. Or it could be that you caught up with an old friend or you just enjoyed having chance to do the washing up because you hadn't done it all week, um, whatever it was. So everybody got something written down, a couple of things written down? How did that feel to, to do that? Kind of nice? In a sort of just mild, moderate way, but nice. Not, woo! <laughs> <laughs> so when people were asked to do that exact thing you've, I've just asked you to do each night for one week, their happiness using a multi-factor measure of happiness um, was measured before, um, before they started doing that and then at intervals for six months out. They found that how happy people felt, the green line, increased over the period of the six months and the tendency to feel down, they weren't necessarily a clinical population, tendency to feel down decreased over that period um, of six months. So how long did it take you to do this? to write those three things down? Minute or two? Maybe some days are harder than the others, so let's multiply that by seven because this was done for one week, the experiment. So maybe 10 or 15 minutes a week in the first week. That's not bad return on investment, is it? Why does it work? Why does it work? Because you're focusing on the positives. Is that something you'd normally do? Some people say no, some people say yes, and no, yeah, yeah, and we will, we will vary on our kind of natural propensity towards what is called gratitude um, in the literature. Um, yeah, so what does that, why does that, why does that have an effect on us? To enjoy each moment. To enjoy each moment. Somebody else says something over there? Negativity bias. Negativity bias, absolutely. Our brains, this is brain training exercise, that activity, writing down those two things, for those of you who don't do it, um, some people have a regular practice now of doing it, but um, it's actually, it is a brain training exercise because our brains are hardwired to focus on what's wrong. 
for very good reason. Because our brains, our modern brains, formed when we were hunters and gatherers out there on the millennia. And I noticed in the past there's been a whole day on evolutionary psychology. This is a bit of e evolutionary psychology. So our brains, um, our brains were formed when we were hunters and gatherers. And life in those days was much more dangerous than it is today in terms of life or death threats. And our brains are primarily designed to keep us physically safe and alive. That's the primary purpose of our brain. So what happens then if we're out there, you know, hunters and gatherers, you know, trying to find a few berries to eat, and we see a rustle in the grass? Our brains became hardwired to A, notice any signs of a potential risk and jump to, um, in a way, the worst case scenario, that it could be a hungry predator. They're actually thinking that we look quite tasty to eat. So we have what we're called emotional false alarms. It's much safer to think that there's one of these um, lurking, lurking in the grass somewhere. Um, it's much safer to assume that, even if it's not, um, because you do not want to be smelling the roses if something like this is, is, is out there coming to get you. So our brains evolve what's called, been termed now, a natural negativity bias. So um, we have to train our brains to focus on what's right. Now again, going back to when I first studied psychology, the, it was the only emotions that were taken seriously in those days were these unpleasant emotions. Um, I actually, I don't call them, I don't call them negative and positive emotions because actually unpleasant emotions do have their place and can indeed be positive. So just if, if any of you get into the nuances of literature, but no. Um, so um, it was all the only things like fear and things were the most important emotions because those had kept us safe. And that these kind of pleasant emotions, because they tend to be more diffuse, tend to be more diffuse, um, were a nice to have. They were a cherry on the cake, but they didn't really serve much purpose. Well, actually, Barbara Fredrickson at uh, the uh, University of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, has actually shown that not to be the case. Because, and she would argue that drip feed of small moments of sort of pleasant moments, um, pleasant emotional moments add up. Because when we are in a, when we're in a, a fearful state, um, our perceptual fields narrow, which makes sense because you want to be focused on the source of danger. But when we're in a pleasant emotional state, we literally see more. We literally see more. We are more open to other people. We're more trusting of people from other cultures. We are um, more open to ideas. We're better at problem solving. We are more flexible in our thinking. And little by little by little, that adds up to building our psychosocial resources. So she calls it the broaden and build theory of positive emotions. And there's even evidence that this kind of drip feed of um, pleasant emotion, emotional experiences can actually start to buffer us and indeed undo some of the damage that um, um, prolonged exposure to stress can do in our brain. So she calls it kind of creating these, this broaden and build, this drip feed of, she calls them micro moments of positivity, which being a Brit, I don't use very often. <laughs> um, micro moments of positivity actually um, add up um, and create kind of um, 
sort of a virtuous virtuous spirals outwards because they, they you know the more we experience them the more um, it helps us to experience more of them so um, so this idea I think is central to some of the stuff that we're talking about today so so if we start to think about these idea of strength, so I'm going to talk a lot about strength psychology um, until the break. We'll have a break in about half an hour or so, um, because this is a big one, a big kind of pillar, if you like, of positive psychology. Because this natural negativity bias doesn't just um, apply to what, how we think about our day and um, what's going on in our lives. It actually applies to how we feel about us and indeed what we notice about ourselves and what we notice about other people. So uh, traditionally we focus on what's wrong with us, what we're not good at, the weak areas we've got to improve on. We don't focus on what's right with us and what we can build on. So I want you to think about, I want you to bring to mind a time when you genuinely felt at your best. You were really proud, maybe it's time you were proud of you, something different. It can be anything. It could be, um, I want you to think of a specific time and it might be from last week, it could be from 15 years ago, it doesn't matter. But, and it doesn't have to be the best. Um, but I just want you, we're gonna, I'm gonna ask you to do some thinking about this in a bit, but I want you to bring something to, to mind um, so you've got that there. Um, so it could be work-related. Often it's better to think of a non-work-related thing because that's kind of easier to free our minds up a bit. Um, so sometimes people have talked about um, delivering a baby on the back seat of a car was the most dramatic one. Um, that was a CEO of a, uh, an Australian company I just worked with. Um, people have talked about baking, having a marathon cake baking session for a charity. Somebody's talked about organising a party. Um, somebody talked about how when they noticed somebody in danger, they helped them. Somebody was coaching a kids' football team. Just what doesn't really matter, whatever it is, but something specific. How does it feel when you think about... Um, when you think about yourself at your best. Are any of you struggling to come up with something? Yeah, are some of you struggling? It's hard, it's because we're not used to doing this and, the, you know, and this kind of inner chatter comes into mind, which we'll, we'll look at later. But we're gonna, I'm, the reason I've asked you to do this now is because I, I know I'm, when somebody asks me to come up with an example from my own life, I find it quite hard to do it in the moment. So trust me, your subconsciouses will be working on um, are working on idea, and so we'll, we'll, we're going to play with this later. But you're not going to have to talk about it out loud to, to everybody, so don't worry about that. So, strengths. What do we mean by strengths? So, Seligman and Chris Peterson, who is also instrumental in this whole strength psychology, a psychologist from, who was at University of Michigan, described that the strengths are those qualities that are best about people and their potential to contribute to the world and achieve well-being. So I really like that definition because it's about us feeling good and functioning well, but it's actually about also how we can best contribute to the world. Other people have talked about our strengths being things that are kind of our, in a way, natural orientations for thinking, feeling, willing and behaving. Um, and Alex Lindley, who is again another psychologist, uh, British psychologist, and quite a lot of work, done a lot of work on strengths, not quite a lot, 
um, talked about this idea that strengths um, are these patterns of behavior, thinking, and um, motivation, willing is mo what um, Ryan Nemec means by willing, um, is that they're energizing. And this is a key feature of strengths because you know, I can guarantee every single person in this room has strengths, you have weaknesses, and you've also got a lot of what's called learned capabilities. So things that you can do well but you don't necessarily find sustaining and energizing. So for example, I spent five years as an accountant. I can do Excel spreadsheets, and sometimes they're necessary. Do they feed my soul? Do they give me energy? No, no, they are not energizing for me, but I can do them reasonably well. So that's a learned capability, um, but it's not a strength. So, um, so, this, so this is a real key idea about strengths. It's not, not everything we are good at is a strength. A strength is quite, and only we know what we find energizing. So other people will see things that we're good at. Some of those might be strengths. Some of them might be learned capabilities. So this is one thing that we need to unpack. So, and again, oh, I won't talk about, but again, this idea of, um, this, you know, this, with this idea of positive emotions, that actually one theory about how strengths contribute to flourishing is that they help us to be less negative in the way towards our, to ourselves and create more of a feed of positive emotions. And we know that people who are using their strengths more, this is through a whole host of studies, are, are happier. They're more confident, um, which figures have lots of, you know, have feel more a sense of greater vitality, experience less stress, greater resilience, and are more likely um, to achieve their goals and uh, um, fulfill their potential, if you like, um, effective at developing themselves. I'm not going to go into workplace applications, but those of you, anybody here manage, is a manager of other people or a leader of other people? A few of you? Yeah. Well, we know that... Um, when people are able to use their strengths most days at work, they're six times more likely to be engaged and six times less likely to dread going to work. Um, there's all sorts of other benefits. We know that managers that emphasize this stuff um, have greater engagement scores. Measure For those of you who don't know, is a measure of um, how um, engaged people are um, in their work um, the managers emphasizing weaknesses which is, and this is hard so and then when we think about developing ourselves you're going to indulge me now with my little diagram here um, so I quite like when we think about developing ourselves often we think well there's I've got to get better at this I've got to get better at you know whatever um, and we're and it's always the areas where it's often the areas we're less good at um, Whereas actually a strength psychology say that the things that we need to really focus on in terms of our development are indeed our areas of strength because those are the kind of, that's our greatest source of greatest potential. Does not mean to say we ignore weaknesses, but we only focus on weaknesses to the extent that um, they're holding us back from using our strengths. So if I'm, um, one personal example, which, uh, you know, I was kind of late to the game in discovering my own potential, really, and still discovering it. Um, you know, hence going into <laughs> accounting, which is inexplicable to some. Um, um, <laughs> and myself sometimes. Um, um, actually, cre cre one of my strengths is creativity, creative thinking. 
And, um, and when I got into consulting, it was actually great because I could use it more. But I was just like, you know, it was blurting out strengths, um, ideas all the time in meetings. But it comes in, in consulting, you have deadlines. And there comes a point on a project where you have to stop generating ideas and actually decide what you're going to do and do it. So I had to learn the skill of actually knowing the timing of what, you know, when to use my skill of uh, my strength of creativity and when do I need to come in and just sense the environment and just be, you know, now we need to be really focused on that deadline. Um, so, so that was an idea. That's something I had to learn to actually maximize the effectiveness of that strength of creativity. Because generating ideas when you're close to a deadline is... Um, a pain in the bum does not appear as a strength. It appears as a. It actually shows up as a weakness. But anyway, more of that later. Um, so anyway, this idea of a metaphor. So you know, why so you know we may need if we've got a boat and it's got a leak, we need to plug that gap, i.e., the weakness. Um, but the boat will not move unless we put um, wind in our sails, which is our strength. Do you like that? <laughs> Should we do it again? <laughs> There we go. <laughs> and another one. It's often our strength. So, so one of the common ways, there are lots of different ways. We're going to experiment with a way of spotting strengths um, shortly. Um, but lots of, um, sometimes if we've got a mentor or a tutor or a coach, they can help us. Friends and family indeed can help us. Managers at work can help us, colleagues. Um, or we can take a strength survey. Um, because actually when we start to think of our strengths, we... Um, you come across people come across Johari windows. The Johari window is quite an old psychology tool. Um, that there are things that other people see in us, an experience of us, but are actually not seen by us. That could be our strengths. And I, I once, because of my interest in creativity, I once went to a lecture um, on can you teach creativity. And one of the panel members was Michael Craig Martin, who's an eminent British artist, taught. Damien Hurst, Tracy Emin, all those people at Goldsmiths. Um, and he said his duty, one of his main tasks as a professor of art, was um, to help his students see what they did best, what, where their areas of natural potential were. He said, because often the things that they did best were the things they valued least. Because actually those things weren't, weren't effortful for them. They did them naturally. They thought everybody did them that way. And what they wanted to do was what, you know, their friend over there in the, you know, the other side of the studio was doing. They wanted to try and force fit them into somebody else's kind of strengths, if you like. So his job was actually to help them see their natural areas of strength um, as an artist and help nurture and develop that natural talent not getting them to try and do something that wasn't them. So I felt like that was quite interesting. So we, do you want to have a go at spotting some strengths? So we hope the technology works. I'm going to show you a video, which many of you will have seen before. Um, um, and um, I want you to watch it, though, with the idea of spotting Susan Boyle. I want you to spot her strengths. Ooh. Hang on. Technology. What's going on here? Hi, what's your name, darling? My name is Susan Boyle. Okay, uh, Susan, uh, where are you from? I am from Blackburn, near Bathgate, West Lothian. That's a big town. 
it's a sort of collection of, it's a collection of, uh, villages. How do you think, dear? And how old are you, Susan? I am 47. I'm going to slap Simon Cow. Okay, what's the dream? I, I'm trying to be a professional singer. And why hasn't it worked out so far, Susan? I've never been given the chance before, but he's hoping it will change. Okay, and who would you like to be as successful as? Elaine Page. Elaine Page. Like what are you going to sing tonight? I'm going to sing I Dreamed a Dream from the Miserables. Okay, take off. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. I've seen it thousands of times. It's all go, whoo. <laughs> um, that's actually a feature of when people are really in the zone of their strengths, is that there is, it's, it's just wonderful to see. I mean, yeah, even Piers Morgan, you can see. <laughs> um, even Piers Morgan. I mean, it's just wonderful. And that is what it's all about, really. Um, so what strengths was Susan using? What, what strengths did you see in Susan? She was very human, just being herself. Being herself, being authentic, yeah. Sense of humour. Sense of humour, yeah, she had a sense of humour. She seemed to believe in herself, confidence, yeah. What other? Singing. Singing, singing. <laughs> well, she could clearly say, we'll come back to that. Thank uh, Courage. Courage, yeah. I mean, it doesn't... Yeah, she wasn't scared to give. Maybe she was scared, but she still, she gave it a go. Just resilience, yeah. It's very feminine. Feminine. So she, yeah, she wasn't afraid to be a to be a woman. To, yeah, an unemployed woman of forty-seven, as it said up there. Um, yeah. Vulnerability. So she was okay to, yeah, yeah. What? Humility, yeah. She wasn't trying to be anything she wasn't. She wasn't trying to be from some fancy background. Yeah. What about perseverance? Oh, yeah. Challenging. She, just, she wasn't afraid to challenge them. Yeah. 47, you know. Yeah, yeah. She was just saying, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to still go for it. This is my dream. Well, it's really interesting because one school of thought, the school of thought we're going to spend a bit of time thinking about today is that there's a difference between strengths and talent and skill. So singing, you could argue, was um, Susan had a natural, has a natural talent for singing. Um, I might be able to improve as a singer, but I will probably never be able to sing. Well, I'd have to learn to sing in tune first, but um, I'd um, never be able to sing as powerfully as, as Susan. There are lots of people, though, who have a, a, a natural talent for singing, who can you know, instinctively sing in tune, can hold a tune. But they don't end up 
fulfilling a dream, even if they have one, of becoming a singer. And it's Susan's strengths, um, in a way, her strengths um, of character that have helped her um, actually get up on that stage to persevere, to have the you know, or, you know, trust and belief in herself, the courage to do that. And Seligman certainly and Chris Peterson would say that um, the strengths, and well, I'm going to focus on the strengths of character model, but I'll talk to you at the end about other models of strengths. Um, um, that these are the things that are naturally us that we can do more of, that where the areas when we apply them, we learn rapidly, they're things that are not squandered. It's kind of hard to squander those strengths of character, but those are the ones that help us make the most of our natural abilities. And of course, you know, to sing, to sing with that sort of force and command also takes skill. So, you know, if we've got a natural talent, we, you know, we've got the, the strengths of character that enable us to make the most of that talent, we still need to put effort in and learn the skills that that talent, whatever talent requires. If I want to be a brilliant artist, you know, I have to learn the skills of drawing or painting or whatever my medium is. Um, if I want to become a brilliant, I've got a natural talent around commuter programming, I still got to put the, t the hours in to learn the skills around whatever programming language I'm using. So, so we need to think about those things, but it's actually started to think about what are the qualities that mean, that help um, me um, make the most of who I am. And sometimes, this might be something you want to reflect on. We're not going to do this as an activity now. But sometimes, you know, the, these qualities are natural, our most natural strengths have been there since we were tiny. Sometimes we discover some later on. But often the clues, the things that we did when we were free to choose, um, give us clues to our natural strengths. So, you know, I... Um, I love drawing and love pulling things to putting things together and fitting things together. And when I was about 10 or 11, I created a school in a box. I designed a school. I had the, I had the name of the school, the logo, I had the school uniforms. I had the, um, well, I didn't make the, I drew them. And, um, and then I had all the registers and the class timetables. I did all of this and put this whole school together in a box. Um, because I, that was, you know, and, it, you know, and that, that sort of thing that I enjoyed was quite creative and it was, uh, connecting, bringing things together, sort of quite architectural. Um, but then I completely ignored all of that stuff when I went into accounting. So it's kind of interesting, these um, thinking about what you love doing to child and what clues do they give to your strengths? Because it's a, in a way, um, some of the psychologists that are, are very focused on strengths say it's a journey. The journey to understanding our strengths and using them is a journey. So are you up for another experiment? Before break, great. I like the screw. <laughs> um, you need to be in a trio. So, can you organise those trio? And maybe try try and speak to somebody you didn't necessarily come with. Um, it's quite nice to work with somebody you didn't know. So, you need to be in a trio. And I know it's not ideal. And you can actually, if you want, we're going to spend about ten minutes or so on this, so you can all move to the side as well. Anybody not in a trio? Anybody not in a trio? Anybody not in a trio? Anybody trioless? No, we're okay. We're okay. 
You can do a pair if you need to. It's just nicer to work in a trio if you can. Okay. You, need, you also need, you each need a pen and a paper as well. So you need that to have that hand. But, so feel free if you want to move to the side. For so here's the task. And it may not feel comfortable. <laughs> Remember Susan's courage? Um, I asked you before to think about a time when you felt you were at your best. You genuinely felt you were at your best. Um, I want you in your trios to take it in turns to just share, spend three minutes or so, describing that situation, describing what it was you did and why you were proud or pleased that you, you know, but just describe this situation, spend most of the time on this bit. The task of your partners, this is not a conversation. So mindful listening, you could argue this is mindful listening. I wouldn't argue, it is mindful listening. Um, so what person A is sharing their story, persons B and C listen to that story, but they listen specifically for strengths, like you did with Susan, and you write the strengths you're hearing in that story, um, um, in that person's story. When that person has finished, you share, the two of you share the strengths that you heard in that person. Again, okay, not a conversation, it's a gift of, um, of the listener back to that person. They, they accept them, they can write them down, then take a moment of pause and go on to the next person. So, you know, four minutes or so per person for the whole thing. But just, I want you to come away with two, three, four strengths that people have heard in your story. And we'll just see what we notice. It's an experiment. Is that okay? So person A, decide who's going to go first. Don't spend hours on that, just choose. Then share, listen for strengths, stop and then re um, repeat the process, okay? Well, this just it's the time, it's if you wouldn't mind, I really want you to complete those. We're gonna go shortly into a break, but uh, could you complete them over break? It's important that you do, so if you wouldn't mind. Um, just wanna get a thing, for those of, uh, you know, for your experience so far, what was it like, for those of you who've so far shared your story, what was it like talking about a time when you were at your best? It was exciting. You enjoyed it. Good. Yeah. So? Uncomfortable. Uncomfortable? Why was it uncomfortable? You're not used to doing it. And often we're taught it's a bad thing to do. So it's interesting, isn't it? What was it like listening to somebody talking about a time when they were at their best? Inspiring. Uplifting. Other... other Fascinating. People at the back, what did you experience? Positive. positive. Sorry? Goosebumps. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? What did you notice about that person's demeanor when they were telling that story and as they got into that story? What did you notice when somebody was describing a time when they were at their best? Animation. Animation. Sorry? Sorry? Passionate. Passionate, yeah. Yeah. Other. And what? what Authenticity and what was it about that person? Sort of, you know, sense of direction. Sense of direction. What? How were they holding their bodies? How? What was going on in their face? Beaming. Beaming. Courage. Courage. Happy. Happy. With openness. openness. It's really interesting. Notice your body. Um, uh, what? Freedom in their yeah in their movements yeah. Can I just say something? Yeah. 
Oh. And I actually feel something that is the opposite to happiness right now. So just for anything in the future, maybe just like a little ting of you've only got one minute left. Because actually I know that this lady's also been very sad and disappointed about that. So it's kind of giving us a complete, I can't give you any words about how I felt anymore. Because I, I feel something for this person that's like got 10 seconds, 20 seconds into a story. Oh. And then like, Oh, sorry. I'm sorry, and I do apologise for that. And thank you very much for pointing that. No, I pre well, but that for me is really, is really an indication of how powerful it is when we're sharing a story when we're out of time our best. So, so, so I no, I really appreciate you that. So I would really, and I did ask, I asked you if you could make sure that you complete those stories. No one. Yeah. That is important for them. And then we're just like, oh, it doesn't matter about this story. No, it does matter about the story. Yeah. They're in the middle of it and they're in the middle of feeling something. Yeah. So it's kind of gone from being something nice and pleasurable to actually something which I feel really disrespectful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Go. And that, and that may well be. <laughs> that may well be, actually. No, I agree, I agree. So I, I do apologise for interrupting you. It's just because I'm conscious of time and I know that we're over break time. So um, I, but I really appreciate that. And it is an indication of quite what a powerful experience this can be, both the listening of it and the fact that it generates those feelings if, we are, if we're cut short in that. So, so it is important to complete those, complete those. So... Um, for those of you that were, um, had, have had the experience so far of having people share your strengths, share strengths that they heard in you, what was that like? Good. Yeah? <laughs> yeah? What was it like hearing somebody saying, I heard these quotes? Did, some, did somebody share a strength in you that you hadn't thought of yourself? Surprising? So say a little bit more. Um, as I was telling the story, I think I was, I was thinking is my strengths were probably something like um, empathy or patience, but people were saying instead of resilience and flexibility, which I hadn't really thought about. So, so this is, so this is, yes, so, so, so um, if you couldn't hear that, the, um, this lady down here said that she thought her strengths were, were empathy and patience. Um, but the people were, were maybe also hearing um, resilience and, and, and flexibility, you know, which she hadn't thought of, so she found surprising. So it's kind of interesting. So sometimes, and sometimes those things can be strengths, they can be energy, but sometimes they, they might not be. But often they're things that we haven't thought of because this stuff is so natural to us that we don't really place any value on it. So it's quite interesting. So it's quite. So I would like us to take a... 12-minute break, um, please, please do complete your trios if you have, because I would, this is actually the first time I've actually interrupted those stories ever, um, so um, please do complete them if you can. So we're going to spend a little bit of time thinking about um, applying your strengths, because it's all well and good um, knowing what your strengths are, getting a fuller picture. And today we've just had a little taster. Hopefully you've got, um, you know, a few strengths that you can work with or play with today. So I'm going to ask you shortly to think, to pick a strength 
and maybe think about how you can apply that. But to just give you a little bit of um, a little bit of a sort of research on tiny taste of research on applying your strengths. So. Um, and the same, one of the classic positive psychology studies that that um, writing down three good things came from was also an intervention that asked people to um, use one of their top five strengths. So in the VIA, when you take the, the values in action survey, I'll give you the link to that um, shortly. Um, they asked you to choose your top five. Um, and, well, the survey gives you top five. You don't have to take that, those as your top five, but broadly it'd be one of the ones at the top. And take one of those strengths and try and find new ways of applying it. Um, and when they asked people to do that um, for a week, again, they found a similar trajectory in terms of feeling happier, um, um, trending upwards, and lower tendency towards depression-type symptoms. So again, um, and it's something that grows. These things grow over time. And... Um, um, well, the sort of lead psychologist at the um, VIA, the Values in Action Institute, Ryan Nemiak, talks about this as being a journey, strengths, understanding our strengths and using our strengths as a journey. And they talk about really being clear, getting clear on what is often described as your signature strength. So those, because you can't focus on 20 strengths, you know, um, so pick... They typically say top five. It could be your top one, your top three. Um, get to know what those are. Um, so these are things that feel most like you. They're most energized when you're using them. There's, you know, you, you know you're, you're, um, you're kind of naturally drawn towards using them. And when you know about them, you can actually use them a bit more. And Ryan talks about, actually I should put his name, this is Ryan Nemiak's um, approach, talks about a three-stage approach to understanding our strengths. So one is awareness. You know, what are our strengths? So what were the clues that have been there in my life all the time and the times in my life I've been most energized? And you can even plot that and think about that. From doing an activity like um, we've just done, sharing a story of you at your best, doing a survey. So get to know what your strengths are. And then think about how you're using those currently. What do others see? When I first did the VIA survey, I was a bit, you know, cynical. Thought, oh, I'm going to test this out. So I took the top 10 that the survey gave me and I did an Excel spreadsheet. You can take the girl out of accounting. Can't take it. <laughs> and I did, I just did the top 10 and I sent it to some friends, some family members and some colleagues. And I just said, here are 10 strengths. I didn't say these were my top 10 from a survey. I just said, here are 10 strengths. Can you see in them which, if any, would you, cons would you say are, are my particular top strengths? And it was really interesting because the top 10, they, um, without exception, I think I sent it to about, I don't know, nine or 10 people, um, they could see them all in me, but there were some variants in terms of the ones that they felt were my top strength. And interestingly, um, people at work could see creativity, which is one of my top strengths, um, but people at home didn't necessarily see that. So all my creativity was being applied in the service of my work. And so one of the things I've been working on is how can I use my creativity more outside of work? Um, so that's kind of exploring. And then, of course, finding new ways to learn. And I like this idea of um, you know, starting to think about who are the people that um, you know, really exemplify creativity or you know, whatever strength it is for me, creativity in my life. And it, you know, for me, it might not be an artist. 
um, because actually that's not my particular application, but it might be somebody who's a really good thinker and connector of worlds, because for me that's what, what my form of creativity is about. So it's learning from... So it's, this is a journey, a destination. But I want us to start thinking about... I want you to go away here with an idea for an experiment, and I, I you know, view it as an experiment, about how you're going to put a strength, try out using a strength in a new way. And I'm going to share with you a little... I love this experiment. This is an experiment. It wasn't particularly... But this is Ellen Langer, who's a Harvard psychologist. She has theories around mindset and a particular form of mindfulness. It's not classic form of mindfulness that we know. Um, so she uh, asked um, classical concert musicians. It was an experiment with them. So if you to, to try, in, in this instance, she was using creativity. Um, she wanted them, so if you think about a classical musician, they train, train, train for years, highly skilled. They then go and work um, and they perform a classical repertoire, which is fairly fixed. I mean, you know, they can change the expression of it and, you know, working with different conductors, but it's quite, there's not that massive room for manoeuvre. So she asked them in this experiment to, they had to, you know, play their standard repertoire that there's lots of recordings of them playing, a particular orchestra. And then she got people to think about individually to change the next time they played to change how they played in a way that they felt was a positive change you know positive change an expression of them but in a way that no one else would know so we're not talking about just suddenly changing the key and I'm so unmusical so I'm using the wrong expressions but the key in which they were playing or whatever you know but imperceptible change but a way that felt good to them in a, um, in a way that only they would know they recorded um, those concerts, and then they played them to general public audiences, the, the, the regular concerts, and then these ones where they were, they were individually doing these things. The audiences f found that the, um, when they, these people were just you know, applying their creativity in a, in a way that only they would know, the audiences picked up on that. They rated those performances higher. And of course, the musicians, well, not of course, but the musicians actually had a much more enjoyable experience of playing those. So we can think about changing things in, even in tiny ways. So I want you to think about um, one of your strengths from today. And what's a new way you could apply that? Maybe it's in an everyday activity. Um, maybe it's um, something that you could do to, to actually apply more in the service of others. Um, but how could you nurture that strength in yourself? So I want you to just um, literally have a conversation, um, maybe back in your trios, because you've had a conversation, just pick one strength and one idea for how you might use it, um, um, you know, use that strength, experiment with that, so using that strength more or in new ways. So is that clear? So back in your trios, you've got a minute or so each to talk. And I will give you a one-minute warning. <laughs> and remind me if I don't. <laughs> Would a couple of people be willing to share the strength they're going to be experimenting with and the way that they're going to try to use it in a new way or use it differently or use it more? Um, yeah, my, my job, well, I've got two jobs. I'm a nursing school teacher. I'm also a youth worker. So, so I'm naturally in a nurturing role and that's part of that job. But my new friends here... Was suggesting nurturing more with, uh, or we've talked about nurturing more with 
your own friends and adults and people that you're not having to do that as a job for. Oh, I'm beginning to explore that and that is something Brilliant, great. So using that skill, that strength of nurturing, but in not in a work context, in a to your friends and uh, yeah, family context. Great, thank you, thank you. Well, let's hear one more. It's nice to hear some of these. Thank you. Is it Paul? Paul, was it? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm actually about to deliver my first well-being workshop, which is going to be focusing on strength. Yeah. Um, so Lots of ideas, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> if you give me credit, it's okay. <laughs> credit the book. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so one of the, um, the strengths that came up was uh, courage and bravery. So I'm approaching it from a place of courage and bravery and seeing that, uh, you know, having a positive relationship to the experience rather than sort of it being nervous, it's going to be exciting. Mm, that's great. That's great. And what that reminds me of, thank you. So that courage and bravery um, in, in delivering your first workshop around a well-being workshop, which is based on strengths. So it does, um, yeah. Courage and bravery. Gets, yeah, it's not unscary standing up in front of a whole load of people. <laughs> um, and I, that reminds me of something. There's an idea of strengths priming. Um, so you know, when you're about to go on, you know, and deliver that workshop. Just take a few moments to, you know, tune into that strength of courage and bravery. Maybe tune into a time when you've used courage before. It might be a totally different context, but just get yourself anchored in that. And that actually is also a really good thing, way of using strengths, you know, with other people. You know, if you're going to have a conversation with someone, say, that you're not very comfortable with doing, is actually think about, um, you know, their strengths. And, you know, um, when people were doing that, when di uh, did that in a therapeutic environment, um, when uh, therapists and, and sometimes coaches thought about their clients' strengths for five minutes before going into those therapy sessions, the outcomes of those sessions were in an experiment found to be um, more um, successful. So, which is kind of interesting. So when we think about strengths of other people, so we can play with. Let's have one more example of using a strength in a new way. One more example. With a little courage and bravery. Anybody willing to share one? Thank you. Um, my strength was gratitude um, for something that I was doing. And I thought I could bring that into the workplace. And sometimes you have difficult um, relationships with people that you work with, and it's hard to connect with them. So if, you, if I maybe somehow think of something I'm grateful for them to bring to the team, maybe that will help me appreciate them more and facilitate a Fantastic idea. Thank you. That's great. So uh, strength of gratitude for those of you who didn't hear, bringing that into the workplace, particularly with people that are, you know, difficult to even thinking about, you know, what you're, um, you're grateful for in terms of bringing them um, what they bring to the team. So experimenting with that. And think of this as an experiment, you know, it may not always work, but, you know, you may find it does. So we're going to move on um, quickly on that. Just um, I want to cover a couple of other topics very quickly before we go. Um, but just in terms of some taking this idea of strengths further, and we'll send around a PDF of these um, slides after, after today. Um, but there's the classic strength surveys. that These are online surveys that people do. The ones that we've, I've sort of referenced um, most today is VIA, the Values in Action. And it, it's sort of an interplay between strengths of character and values. Um, it, you can do it for free. So that's the link. Strengths Finder 2.0, you can buy a book or you can do it online. Um, it's work-oriented. There's Strengths Profile, which was used to be called Realize 2. 
um, that is a slightly more involved complex model, but again, slightly work oriented, but there's different ones. Explore what other people see in you, but you know, caveat with what you find energizing. We've talked about role models and I've just mentioned a bit about um, getting, it's building your strengths literacy um, and thinking about you know, strengths in other people. Um, it starts to help um, you think, you, know, you train your brain in that orientation. So some ideas there, but this will be um, with you so you can ponder that um, in your own leisure. Um, later. In a time, once together, because it's you know, the topic of potential, we focus a lot on strengths and you've been hearing lots of different ideas around potential. But I just want to um, just I'll spend a few moments thinking what gets in the way of being able to use our potential? What are some of the things that hinder it? You know, especially things that are within our span of control. What sorts of things? Yeah. Doubts, fears, fear of the unknown. Social conditioning. Thinking that we're not good enough. Lack of support. What was that? Somebody said. Imposter syndrome. Yeah, very common. Being um, an initiative, an initiate, being new to something. If you're new to something and you plunge in, yeah. Um, you, to begin with, you need to be um, not to sort of splash out and be at your your strongest, your most assertive. You need to be receptive to learn. So, like if you were uh, learning to drive the first time you got into a car, you've got a lot of things to explore before you confidently pull out into the middle of the road and knock the cyclist over coming. Absolutely. So not expecting to get it right first time, sometimes people say, yeah, you're being, being new to something. That, so would it's you... a good thing. Yeah. Not always. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Was it when we say we're consciously incompetent, is that there's a situational leadership. That, that's a, that sort of comes from situational leadership. Yeah, yeah. So, So, so maybe, maybe something what was coming up for me there. So this is about time, and particularly with the topic of creativity, uh, uh, um, is actually recognizing what you know what you need to set up for yourself to explore those strengths. So if it is something like creativity, sometimes it takes time and space. Um, you know, thinking what you need, um, but that will vary by strength. But I want to pick up on some of the things that I'll probably say that um, probably about two thirds or three quarters of what you've just said. Uh, are things about how we feel, are fears that are inside, imposter syndrome, not feeling good enough, those sorts of things. So in this key of the 10 keys, um, the acceptance key, uh, you know, there's a focus on strengths, but there's also a focus on what's going on inside our heads with regard to ourselves. And, you know, and it's sort of the, the posts, these are free posters you can download. Um, you know, don't, you know, we're, we're you know, focusing on what, what we're good at, our, our sort of unique combination of strengths and what they mean to us, um, not what other people are. But I want to ask you this question. Now, imagine a friend of yours messes up, makes a mistake. Maybe they're trying something new, but they've gone for it big time and they've made a big mistake. Um, how do you treat them? How would you talk to them? How would you um, help them? 
Yeah. Reassure them. Reassure them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that what, we're, what, you're, what I'm also hearing is, I think there's a rise in perfectionism. I think we've got a huge epidemic of perfectionism and high expectations. Yeah. So actually a lot of people project it out. It's called other-oriented perfectionism. Yeah. And it's about your expectations of other people. You're very critical of those people when they don't meet your needs. And that's through a lot of our relationships, is whether in work. It, it's affecting us quite considerably. So what we all look and go and say, often we're not. Um, okay. Hold that thought, what we're going to talk about now. So imagine you make the same mistake as your friends made. How would you treat yourself? Same mistake, how would you treat yourselves? How many of you would be tougher on yourself than you would be on the other person? What do we notice about this picture, people? How many hands in the world? <laughs> we, are, we are often much tougher on ourselves than we are on other people. And this really can compromise our ability to, um, to reach our potential. So I, I'm not gonna pick up on the other people, the other-oriented perfectionism, because I want to, I'm focusing on your potential, but it's a very good point to explore. Um, so what happens when we have this really critical voice in our head is it's actually triggering the threat systems in our kind of more primitive emotional brain. This comes from Paul Gilbert, who's a um, eminent um, uh, psychologist, clinical psychologist, um, done a lot of work with people with acute depression, but done a lot of, he's written two very good books on mindful self-compassion. So he says that we've got, you know, as a human brain, we've got this amazing forebrain, brilliant, you know, it's, it's great, we can imagine the future, we can, you know, see, you know, imagine perfection, all those things. But it's flawed because it also creates um, lots of criticism, lots of um, catastrophic thinking, etc. And what that does is it actually triggers the threat system in our primitive brain because our primitive brain does not distinguish between threats from outside and threats that we are generating ourselves. Albert Ellis, who was the grandfather of cognitive behavioral therapy, said, as human beings, we are remarkably good at disturbing ourselves. And this limits our potential. So I want you, I mean, there's a lot more we could go into, and I run whole sessions on self-compassion, but I just want to think about in this concept of, um, of, um, of achieving our potential, I want you to tune into your inner critic now. So the last time you messed up, the last time, I want you to get a piece of paper, not one with notes on the back, maybe a blank piece of paper or a corner of piece of paper. Um, I want you to think about what is that inner critic in your head saying at its harshest? How does it say it? What sort of tone of voice is it saying? And I want you to write it down, write down a critical, uh, a typical phase that that inner critic would say to, your, to you. You're not gonna have to show this to anyone. So yeah, write it how it is. Okay. What's the sort of, I'm not gonna ask you to share what your inner critic's saying, but what sort of tone does your inner critic use? Shouting. Shouting. Controlling. Controlling. Sneering. Sneering. Yeah, mine was just, it would say something like, God, you're so stupid, you know, why did you ever think you'd be going, like, just not good enough, honestly, it's just embarrassing. That's the sort of thing, I'm probably in a much stronger voice, actually, sometimes. Um, 
What's the intention of your inner critic? What are they, what are they trying to achieve? What's your inner critic trying to achieve? Keep you safe. Keep you safe. Keep, but, but what's underneath that? Shame, but it, it, it might wants you to do well. Improve. It wants you to improve. Yes, there's a mistaken idea that if you, if you tell yourself off, you, you will do it better next time. That's right, yeah, we're going to beat ourselves into submission. But actually, I want you to write, take that phrase down you the way you've written it, and I want you to cross it out. Big cross. Seriously, just seriously cross it out, scrub it out. You can tear out the piece of paper and throw it if you want. Um, cross it out. Because it is not helping you. <laughs> Kristen, so the, uh, Paul Gilbert is uh, probably, I, I think, is the best one, but, uh, but on this stuff. Um, Kristen Neff, who's an American psychologist, has written extensively, worked extensively on this idea of self-compassion. And this idea is that, that we will be, do things perfectly, that we will never make mistakes, and that no one other than us makes mistakes is so flawed because actually making mistakes and trying things out is the human condition. And we know that when people learn to be more self-compassionate to themselves, so compassion is an interesting idea. So it's, being, it's not just about being kind, it's about having empathy, you know, fe you know, feeling those feelings, but also having being motivated to act. So there's a courage component in compassion. But we know that people have, when they're more self-compassionate, they're less likely to be perfectionists. They're less likely to experience shame as well as other disorders. But they're also more likely to achieve their goals. So in terms of, in terms of um, achieving potential, reaching potential, fulfilling potential, then self-compassion, I would argue, is a critical skill. So there are three core components that are argued, that Neff argues um, are critical to self-compassion. One is mindful awareness. So that's tuning in to actually what's going on for us. And sometimes, sometimes that can be in the sense of a physical sensation. I know it is for me. I can start feeling like a knot in my stomach or a tightness around my heart. Um, then then it's me, what's going on there? And then this is idea, this common humanity is recognizing that we are not the first human being to mess up. Neither will we be the last. So in this idea, because we are hardwired to connect with other people, whole topic of a whole other discussion, but um, that actually when we recognize that actually that's our humanness, it's about being part of the human race, that it has itself in itself a, a, a calming question. And, uh, you know, speaking to ourselves with a sense of kindness. So I'm really giving you just a tiny taster of this because um, that's all we've got time to do. But I think it's an important thing to consider. So I want you to rewrite your thing that your internal voice could say. Next time you mess up, if you turn that, from, that voice from a harsh critic into a wise and kind coach. So a coach does not say... There, there, it doesn't matter when you stuff up, because sometimes it does. A coach helps you examine what you've done well and also what, you've, what didn't work and helps you think about strategies that you could try next time. So rewrite yourself a mantra or what you, whatever you call it, a, a phrase for your inner um, critic um, to say um, if it was a coach rather than a critic. So write yourself on this. This can be quite a powerful 
activity to do. Is anybody willing to share one? Sorry? Just observe, don't react. Just observe, don't react. Thank you. What could you learn from this? Thank you. I say it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. You're not the first person to mess up. You'll mess up again. Yeah, yeah. Accept your mistake. Accept your mistake. And apologize. And apologize. Okay, great. Thank you. And it'd be great to take the um, great job for taking the risk become a better person. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Well done on taking the risk to to um to become better. Yeah. So what? Just go for the next challenge. Just say what? Just go for it again. Yeah. So lots of things. One more. Um what systemic change can I make so that I don't mess up next time? Yeah, so that I'm less likely to mess up next time. Yeah. Because you might mess up next time. But you might, you know, but it's, it's all incremental. Messing up is actually how we, it's actually messing up is how human beings have um, got to where they are. Um, not in, I mean, I don't mean that politically, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, as a species, how we've survived this far. We tried out, we made mistakes, few of us have died off, but we won't. So in the last few minutes, I just want, again, this is, I just want you to be aware of this stuff in the context of potential um, um, how many of you here have heard of uh, Carol Dweck's work on mindset? Quite a few of you. For those who haven't, it's really worth looking up. So Carol Dweck's a Stanford psychologist. And she's done a lot of work on fixed versus growth mindset. She started out in education, but now it's being, these ideas are being applied much more generally. Um, and I was at a lecture she gave in London a couple of weeks ago, and she gave this definition of potential. It was not really a definition, but... Uh, I don't know what it is, but I, it was really powerful for me. She said, potential is the belief, and she was particularly talking about children, uh, that you never know what a person is capable of given the right conditions. And I thought that was really wonderful, and that, you, that is an orientation in life and towards others, that we never know what people are capable of, right conditions. But she talked about um, this difference between having a fixed and a growth mindset. So a fixed mindset is where we believe um, that we... It, it originally started off talking about intelligence, but you can apply this to different capacities. Um, that you know, we're either intelligent or we're not intelligent. We're either good at maths or we're not good at maths. Um, and either, both of those can be a fixed mindset. But if we've got this belief that... Um, well, in either case... Um, if we believe we're not good at maths, we don't try. So it actually stops us. That belief stops us even trying and improving. And even if we think we're good at maths and we try, if we fail, the knockback is really severe and it may stop us um, progressing in the future. So this idea is saying it's not about having a fixed capacity, a sort of upper limit, or if you like, on our abilities is actually having a, this idea, which she calls a growth mindset, that regardless of your natural capabilities, everybody can learn and improve with the right strategies and effort. And it's not just effort, it's the right strategies and support. Everybody can learn and develop. And it makes a difference in terms of how we respond to challenges. And if we're trying to learn, we're trying to put our strengths into practice, we will be challenged. Um, we will get tough feedback. You know, um, 
So it actually really changes the way um, we are oriented to, to those situations. So if we experience a challenge, we've got a fixed mindset. I think actually I'm not that great at maths. My first test comes through, I didn't do very well, so I give up. I think there's no point trying, because if I try and I fail again, people are going to know I'm stupid. It's not just me, everybody else is going to see. Um, if, I, if people give feedback, I get defensive because it's actually attacking my identity. Um, and other success, um, when I see other people who are great at maths, for whom it comes easily, then I see that as threatening. Where the converse is true is if we adopt this growth mindset, a mindset that actually it might not be something, I might be doing something that I find hard, but I can get better with the right strategies and effort. That's a, I love that phrase. If you're looking at, say, the culture of Microsoft back in the day, they thought they knew everything, so they stopped learning. Whereas mm. if you look at the new culture with the new chief executive, it's very different. So it works at the top of the scale as well in the hierarchy. Say when a person gets a PhD, for example, and they believe they're the expert now in that particular field of knowledge, so they stop actually learning. When mm. a person stops learning, they stop progressing. That's really, I mean, so, and, uh, I mean, I, uh, you, you may, uh, it sounds like you know this, but Carol Dweck has actually worked very closely with Microsoft in changing the culture. So they have actually been applying this concept of growth mindset into their organization culture led by their current CEO. Yeah, but Carol Dweck has specifically been working with Microsoft. There's Harvard Business Review articles on it and stuff if you want to have a look, look it up. Um, so a very simple way. So um, growth mindsets um, take a lot of effort and work, and it's not easy. And actually, Carol Dweck says, if you, um, if you say, I've got a growth mindset and it, you know, um, about everything, you know, I'm, you know, I've actually I've cornered it, I've got a growth mindset. She said that's actually one of the most fixed mindset things you could say. <laughs> So, so there will be, which talks to your point. Um, she, um, and it will be different, you, you will have, will be a mixture of fixed and growth mindsets, um, you know, different ends of the spectrum, depending on what area we're looking at. So it's interesting to think about areas of my life where I think, well, I'm not good at that. If it's something that I actually, is important for me to learn or, or that is enabling me to use my strength and make most of my potential, how am I going to counter this? And one of a simple way to start, and I'll, leave you with this I mean this is just one idea is actually adding the word yet so when I find myself saying I'm just no good at this if it's something that's important for me to learn I just add the word yet I'm no good at it yet and it just shifts you think so it opens you up to that possibility of trying again of learning from it so I mean I've gone through that really quickly and I'm conscious with time we've got we have a I'm allowed to go into a little bit into break um, now told me to um for questions, I know you want to questions. So I just leave you with um, another quote. I like this quote from Aristotle. So on this day in potential, we've looked quite a lot about strengths. We've just given a kind of flavor of some of the things that um, can hold us back. Two of the things that I think are really important, um, the big, big learning points for me personally. But Aristotle said to live the good life, to live a flourishing life, um, to have well-being, if you like. We must strain every nerve to live in accordance with the best thing in us. So I hope that's, um, 
Oh, I hope you've enjoyed today. Um, I, I will um, say, and one of my phrases that I use with Action for Happiness is that small things over time can make a big difference. So I'll leave you with some 10 keys cards if you want them and think about how you're going to use your strengths in your ways. You can write those down. Um, but that's, thank you from me. If you want to find out more about some of these ideas, there's the 10 keys book. There's obviously loads on the Action for Happiness website. Um, that's a book for kids, actually. The 50 ways is for 7 to 11-year-olds um, based on the 10 keys. But apparently 7 to 11-year-olds like big numbers, not small ones. So 50 is better than 10. Um, <laughs> any questions? Thank you. <laughs> Got a few minutes for questions before, because obviously you will need a break to say. Um, yeah, we'll maybe Fish. do three questions just to make it fair for everyone, but you'll have your break will finish at half past, and that's when the next one will start, the next talk, just keep that in mind. Hello. When they develop, how they developed a growth mindset, you mean? Yeah. I mean, some, for some people, you know, will grow up in an environment, whether at home or at school, that creates, that fosters um, a, a growth mindset. And um, Carol Dweck will say she does a lot of work with schools and how do you, and it's not just, it's not, it's not enough for the teacher just to say, you know, learn from, you know, learn from what you've done, don't, you know, it's try again next time. The whole culture of the school needs to be oriented towards that. And it, it's how, it's what you recognise, for example. So she would say that we should not be just recognising the, the kids that come first, um, the kids that win the sports race, gets top of the, you know, the class in the spelling test or maths test. We should also be recognising the biggest improvers, for example. So there's a lot about culture, but then there is stuff that we can learn and apply ourselves. And she says it's effort, because there's been a lot lot written about um, people talking about oh, it's, you've got to praise the effort not the result but she said that's only just that's part of it and actually it can also send the wrong messages she said it's also about learning strategies so if I'm making if I'm making a really really hard effort but my strat my learning strategies aren't effective then that's going to become very disheartening and I'm actually not going to improve as much so actually how do I learn good strategies for learning whatever I'm trying to learn and what support do I need around that, whether that's mentors or whatever. And she also talks a lot about the voices in our head, which she calls them personas. Um, but, um, you know, but we, you know, it's, it's sort of like inner critic, um, turning it into a, a wise coach. Um, that's my terminology for it. So thank you for that question. Hope I've some way to answer it. Ah, yes. What about when you develop your strengths so much that actually it starts to have a negative impact on your life? I'm talking about planning and managing and sorting Sorting other people's lives out with your strength. <laughs> Only good if you. There's a whole psychology of motor, you know autonomy and all. Um, I, I didn't cover this, and actually, had I had more time, I would. If I was doing longer sessions on strengths, I would. But it's a really, really good question because when we think about our strengths, as soon as we get can get very enthusiastic, and um, and also they are things that are naturally energised for us. So they're kind of things that we just kind of 
get excited about using. But this whole, this, I, Aristotle has this idea of the golden mean, about how do we, what's the optimal use of strength um, in this context, at this time, with these people. Um, so, it, you know, for me, the example I gave of when, you know, my, when I got so excited because I was in a, suddenly found myself in a context where I could use my strength of creativity, but I was actually using it too much at the wrong time. So how do I dial that down? And what's quite interesting, um, and if you get, um, I don't know about his latest book, but um, it's called something like Mindful Strength or something, Ryan Nemec's book, it's looking at mindful strength. He's got a really lovely table. It's actually, well, actually, he allowed me to reproduce it in my book as well, which looks at what strengths look like if they're over, overplayed. And sometimes, what's quite interesting for me, and I think when I do work in organizations, I work on this quite a lot, is that sometimes what we think is a weakness in ourselves or in others is in fact not a weakness, it's a strength overplayed. So, so, so for me, so my um, you know, thing of coming up with ideas too many, you know, at the wrong time could be conceived as, you know, actually Vanessa's got this major weakness of... Um, Deadlines, not recognizing deadlines, and you know, there's a little bit of truth in that. You know, because for me, the strength thing was more important. The ideas thing was more important, but it's actually because of a strength overplayed. So I'm having to learn to dial up my weakness, get stronger in my weakness area of deadlines, but actually moderate, uh, find the right timing for my strengths use. It's a really important question. But if we have more time, we could go in there. But that changes the game for me in terms of the way we treat ourselves. I'm not good enough. Somebody said here about not feeling good, you know, when we, one of the things that goes on in our head is not feeling good enough, it holds our limit, limits our potential. But actually, when we think about, um, is it a strength overplayed? It changes, it changes the paradigm and changes how we treat ourselves. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an important question. So thank you for asking that. Hope I've asked. No. saying stuff to myself, like what's in critic that's saying, you're not good enough, you never see things through, that's not a small voice coming from nowhere. So if I just say, well, tell that guy to shut up and say that it is okay to not you know, to accept yourself, well, that voice is an expression of some very deep, learned behaviours from various traumas, experiences, genetics, there's a whole complex thing that makes me it expresses itself with that voice, and the voice causes lots of Mm. It, it seems like with some of the ideas like um, we're writing through things today, you know, there's like an evidence base for you say this and you do this and you will see marked returns. Does that stuff, does that evidence base exist for some of that silencing the inner critic? Uh, I would say it's... Just like that being a plaster to put over something, actually that the causes of the dysfunction are still there. Important, important question. Important question. So I, this is not putting a sticking plaster over the mouth of the inner critic is actually recognizing the inner critic. I mean, Chris Neff and both Paul Gilbert and Chris Neff would, and I'd recommend re looking at their work, because all evidence-based, um, about um, actually acknowledging that inner critic and thanking them for what they're trying to do and thanking them for being there, you know, for the journey so far. But actually, you know, this is not serving me. And it is a bit about, I mean, it sounds, 
you know, the sort of dialogue we learn. And sometimes, I mean, Paul's work, I mean, both of them have a sort of clinical background, but Paul's, you know, is a deeply clinical background um, about working with people around some of this stuff to actually acknowledge that and start to shift that voice. But the, the idea of self-compassion is, is emerging as a really strong and important, um, important um, thing to be able to learn because if we're not compassionate towards ourselves, we cannot be compassionate really to other people in a sustained way. I mean, it's it, well, it is a harder thing to learn. I mean, I think it. I mean, it's. I mean, I. I. I'd say, try. I'm not a clinical psychologist, so. But I would try um, experimenting with some of these ideas in Paul's book, and, and you can go on Paul runs a four day course that's open for therapists. It's not about training to use it with their clients; it's about applying them for themselves. Um, and I would try that. And if you want to get deeper, then work with a therapist on it. Um, yeah, and there is, um, there are now, I don't know whether you know about my, uh, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, classic eight-week mindfulness course, but there's also one called mindfulness-based self-compassion that Kristen Neff um, developed. So you could also try that. It's an eight-week mindful self-compassion course that would ex get into this a little bit deeper. There are avenues to explore. Yeah. Can I just mention from a clinical aspect? Yeah. Um, actually, what you're describing is CBT. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these ideas, because, you know, Marty Seligman comes from a CBT, and his, his um, mentor was Aaron Beck, who was one of the originators of the CBT. So a lot of these are CBT, come from CBT, and Paul has a more, you know, combined background. But there's lots of ways in. And I, what I think, you know, there's all, you know, is that there are some practical strategies you can try that then start to shift the stuff internally, you know, that, you know, um, helps you... You'd, you know, it depends what you want to deal with, really, and how deep the things are you want to deal with, how much support you need, and how much these strategies can help without the, the help of a therapist. But there's lots of resources that you can try. Thank you. I think. I think. <laughs>